Welcome to episode 203 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So this this podcast might be might seem really amateurish because I don't know that we've done one quite like this before. No, and and this one we like I feel like we should have touched on on this topic sooner just because of our proximity and Anyway, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to talk about today, and it'll make more sense, maybe. So we're going to talk about an, an astronomer, or, well, an amateur astronomer, I should say, whose name is uh, Lucien Kemble, and uh, and he was a, a local amateur astronomer, belonged to to the local club here in near where we live. Uh, he lived just outside the city of Regina, and he also lived um, over in Cochrane, Alberta. And, and I think he, he did some other travels around and observed in a few different places, but those were kind of like his two main haunts. And he, when he lived in each of these locations, uh, which aren't too, too far apart, you know, as, as the crow flies here, I don't know what, like six or 700 kilometers apart, if that, mm-hmm. um, he, uh, he had an observatory and observed with a variety of instruments, but uh, Kemble is most well known for uh, Kemble's cascade, which is a beautiful line of uh, stars, which pools down into NGC 1502, which is uh, an open cluster. Have you ever seen Kemble's Cascade chain? Oh, many times. Um, it's beautiful, uh, particularly with that cluster uh, at the end of it. Um, probably one of my most fond observations of it was through my 120 millimeter ED refractor just in the backyard. Um, like it's it's fine um, in, in light polluted areas. Um, it looks better under a dark sky, but uh, you, you know, don't let that stop you. It's quite wide. Um, I can't remember how wide it is. It just two, barely two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah, degrees. yeah. I, I forget the eyepiece I was using, but I, I was just able to get the whole cascade plus that. Oh, cluster. your telescope! How wide to field your telescope? Was. Yeah, yeah. No, no. First of all, the yeah, the object, and then the I can't remember which eyepiece for the field. Yeah. Thing. But anyway, it, it was beautiful. Um, it's a great, great cluster. Um, well, it's a great. I guess it's an asterism, isn't it? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a group of stars that have like sort of a chance alignment, which makes it uh, look like you know sort of quote unquote something. And and this something here is is like a stream of stars, as as Kemble put it. And he wrote um, to Walter Scott Houston, um, and his observation and sketch of it were published in December of 1980. And uh, when Houston was writing about it, he sort of um, gave it his own spin and uh, his own. Uh, his own words and those caught on by, by sort of changing it from the Kemble stream, which is how Kemble had noted it in his notes uh, to Kemble's cascade. And, and what's neat is uh, Shane, you and you and I have seen Kemble's notes and you can actually see in his notes on NGC 1502 and Kemble's cascade that he writes Kemble stream. And then you can tell like that's in pen or something like a different uh, writing utensil. And then that's, got a two or three lines through it and then in different um you know in 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 pencil it's cascade so he actually had taken and crossed out what what he had called it and then replaced it with what houston Hmm. jones uh had called it which is super cool to see yeah very neat um so just some quick background too like why i mentioned you know we probably should have talked about lucian at a earlier point in the in this life of the, of our podcast because of our proximity so not only did lucian observe near like 20 minutes away from where chris and i live but when lucian kemble passed away 
Um, his observatory uh, was donated to our local astronomy club and is still uh, standing. It's a roll-off roof observatory, and it was moved to the club's dark site. Um, but in addition to that, I think like I think his entire astronomical library was donated yeah. uh, to the local astronomy club as well. So there's some wonderful books that Lucian used or, or, or referenced that are now you know part of the local club's uh, library. Um, but also magazines like uh, the Deep Sky Journal. Um, Lucian had a subscription to that. And, um, or the, I guess it's also the deep sky magazine. I think there's yep. a couple. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, all of these were donated, uh, they're in wonderful condition. And like some of these magazines, uh, were marked up by Lucian as well. Like, um, the, the one that has the article that we're going to talk about here shortly. Uh, so this is from, what is this here? Fall of 1987. It's the deep sky magazine. And, uh, within it, is an article on Scutum's dazzling star cloud. And there is a list. Uh, it's a page long. There has to be, I'm going to guess, uh, you know, 40 ish objects, maybe a little bit more. Um, but what's interesting is like there's pen marks beside, I would say close to half of them, uh, which to me indicates Lucian has observed those. And uh, anyway, I just think that's super cool to have such a close connection to such a well-renowned astronomer. And I'm excited to talk about him today. Yeah. So am I, um, you know, and, and I, I never met, I never met him, although I was, I was into astronomy and I had, uh, I had, you know, been going to RESC meetings that and subscribed to all the magazines and, and uh, joined some online early online forums by that time. And, uh, and he, he was online and, you know, I, I remember going in and, you know, reading some of his reports and, uh, you know, I was like, you know, if anybody was really into astronomy, almost anywhere in, in the world, I, I didn't live anywhere near here at that time. Um, you kind of knew, um, who, who the people were that were kind of sort of pushing back, um, you know, the veil of the night sky and really trying to plumb, uh, the depths, you know, um, and he was one of those people and there was a small number of them who were basically trying to look at everything. And you, you know, by going through his notes, you know, and like you were saying, Shane, he was really trying to systematically uh, go through the entire night sky. Um, and, you know, we've been fortunate to get to know a, a, another one of these individuals that was sort of working um, in a way a, a, alongside Kemble, who is, uh, who is Mark Bratton, who also lives here and, and has an observatory. And uh, we've been fortunate to observe with him uh, many times. And, uh, you know, these, these, are, um, these are dedicated deep sky observers on, you know, my opinion, just a completely different level. I feel like, mm -hmm. um, you know, for me anyway, I feel like an amateur astronomer. I really love doing it and that, but the dedication that, uh, that some of these, uh, people ha have taken to it, like, uh, like Mark and Lucian are, are just, um, such interesting and fascinating observers, uh, that, that you just cherish the moments that, that you get to spend with them under the nighttime sky. Just, just truly astounding people. Yeah. What, you, what a great way to state that, Chris. Um, and, and I like that you, you know, kind of called out that it is next level. Um, like you and I love observing and we observe quite a bit, I would say. Um, but I feel like I'm nowhere near the output that like Lucian Kemble observes uh, or did observe with and how Mark observes. Um, it's it, it like, it really is astounding you know, what they're able or how much they're able to observe. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite inspiring to me. 
It, it is, you know, and and why I say like I feel lucky, like these these aren't just words I'm saying. They're, it's my own experience, and I feel lucky for many of the um, people uh, that I've been a lot, you know, fortunate to observe with, um, you know. But sort of like in particular, what what I learned from Mark is, um, you know, he he put me over the edge on the sketching. So I, I always wanted to sketch. I always like really admired people who could sketch, who could sketch. And, um, and I'd learned some from my friend, uh, Kathleen, uh, my friend Randall and, uh, and, and a few other people like Risa. Um, but you know, when I observed with Mark, you know, what he really demonstrated for me in the field was, and, and he did, he like, when I say he dem- like, he said, this is how you do it. And he showed me, and I was like, I think I got it. You know, I think, I think I can do this. And, and within a year I was you know, I was sort of down to, to be, uh, to be sketching at many of my sessions. I don't sketch at every session, like people like Mark and Lucian seem to, but, uh, but I sketch at like three quarters of my, my sessions now. And it's really, um, brought a lot more enjoyment. Like, you know, here I am somebody who's been doing this for decades and suddenly I feel like I'm getting more enjoyment in, uh, in astronomy than, than I ever have. And, and that's what I feel like people like Kemble and a lot of the other people that, um, that, like you said, are sort of at that next level can help bring those of us who, who are, who have maybe been doing this for a long time. You, you can, you can always still learn something and suddenly, you know, uh, sort of super enhance um, your enjoyment of astronomy, even after you've been doing it for so long. And I know sometimes people ask, you know, oh, you know, you probably, you've been doing this for so long or whatever, and kind of, you know, you know, maybe, maybe you're not still like that enthused or whatever, but, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm more enthused as ever. And it's really, really bugging me how, uh, how we haven't been able to get out together over the past couple of months <laughs> because of the weather. So anyway, um, with that, yeah. So you've allowed me this, this time Shane to kind of exercise my demons. So maybe I'll, I'll just, um, say this, um, and that's that every, every year I write an article with uh, my friend Randall for the Observer's Handbook. And Randall's been on, been on the show before, and he's, uh, he's a historian and, and, a, and a great um, illustrator. Um, and we work together on a project, and then we publish it in the REC Observer's Handbook as sort of our feature constellation or region of the sky or whatever. So recently I was in a meeting with the Observing Committee, and uh, Dale, who's on the committee with us, uh, had sent around this this article that uh, Kemble had written in uh, in the fall or had published in the fall of of eighty seven on his fifty to the pole uh, project. So um, I was I was really thrilled about this. And then you and I started chatting, Shane, and and you really got me. Uh, you really kind of spurred me on because I I had some of the some of the material, and you you were able to kind of link me up with. Uh, with, uh, with your digital copy and, and it actually worked better on my machine. So, uh, anyway, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, like you had all of the digital copies from many, many years ago of Kemble's observations. Uh, just that computer was not working so well for you. So I was yeah. able to kind of help you out, but, uh, yeah, we both have had, you know, the, so I, I guess maybe something else I didn't mention is, uh, Campbell, as an observer, um, was quite diligent in recording all of his observations. He had a paper template that he would um, identify, you know, date, uh, kind of all of the pertinent information that you would have about an obser- observation log, um, but he'd also sketch it and um, thousands of these things, like over 3000, I believe. Um, so this is uh, like a part of the part of the information that was passed on to the local observing club when when he passed away, 
And, uh, you know, all of that was scanned many, many years ago. And uh, yeah, you received a copy of all of that and, and I did too. And it's kind of neat to, to go through that stuff and, and just see, you know, what he observed and his sketching and, you know, what he thought of it in some regards. Although sometimes his observation, obs- the description of his observation uh, sometimes didn't have a lot of detail in it, but uh, the sketches are, are quite, quite nice uh, nonetheless. Yeah. And kind of like what you were saying, um, you know, he, he was, he was working through this, this project and, and many other projects seemed like he was basically trying to observe um, everything in the nighttime sky. And he, uh, that he could see through his 11 inch telescope and, and smaller instruments. And uh, I don't know if he accomplished that goal, but uh, he got close. I'll say mm-hmm. <laughs> if, you know, and, and, you know, what I've been able to glean from his notes and in correspondence with um, people like Alistair Ling, who, who is a columnist for astronomy magazine, um, he writes, uh, I think, a, a large portion of the "What's in the Sky" each month for Astronomy Magazine. Um, but, but I, I think that that what's been available um, digitally is is only uh, a portion of his observations. Um, I'll get more into that later. Um, but I'll say this as well: you know, you actually live um, on the other side of the city. You actually live closer to to my observing site than than I do. And um, I think for you and for me as well, when, when we go to my site, we actually drive by where Kemble observed. We drive within, say, uh, maybe uh, less than a kilometer of where his observatory was. And because you're a little bit closer, you're, you're probably about, or Kemble's site would have been about halfway out to my site, I think, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it, it is actually quite close to where I live right now. Yeah. Yeah. Now also back. So where, where Kimball lived, it's a small town um, just outside of our major city here in a beautiful Valley. It's, it's quite a stunning location. It is. Um, the, the big thing though, uh, you know, when, when Kimball was living there, uh, our city was much, much smaller and far less light pollution. So I think the, the skies out there would have been quite nice actually. Yeah, they would. I kind of think probably, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sort of twice the distance, um, which is still not really that far, um, but I'm about twice the distance now. So probably where, where my place is, is probably maybe within spitting distance of, of what he would have been uh, seeing under, under his skies, which is sort of like a pretty decent uh, sixth magnitude sky. It might've been a little bit better, um, but I think it's, it's fairly close, but yeah, it's kind of cool. Like every time I drive by, um, he, he was uh, a Franciscan friar. And, uh, and he was at a place called uh, St. Michael's retreat and that's where he had his, his observatory. That was just who he was. And, and you drive by this, um, it's up on a hill that, that you drive by, you go down to the Valley and you drive by this and, you know, then, then you kind of continue down the Valley and, uh, you know, uh, another, uh, 15 minutes or so. And that's where my place is. So it, it's kind of neat. So, and I often feel that like when I'm out there observing, um, I'm in that same, uh, Valley topography, um, that, that he was in as well. I think about that frequently. So anyway, um, well, sh- shall I read? It's, it's a very brief essay I, I wrote and I'm not sure um, what will happen to it because um, I wasn't granted additional uh, an additional uh, real estate in, in the text this year. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to redo what I was going to do. And I was going to include this essay as part of it, um, but I'm not going to do that now. So I was like, well, instead of just letting it, uh, uh, languish or go into the trash bin. I'll I'll read it on our uh, I'll read it on our podcast, and then we can discuss some of the other objects that uh, I found on his his uh, notes that I'm interested in observing, and and hopefully you will too, Shane. 
Yeah, I'm excited for this. Um, and and like you said, Chris, this you know in, was intended to be published, but it may not end up being published. So this might be the only time people <laughs> this, can, uh, yeah, can, you know, be uh, be a part of it or or understand the you know the research that you did here. So yeah, okay. I'm excited. All right, well, thanks so much. So this is called the Fifty to the Pole. Father Lucien Kemble uh, lived from 1922 to 1999. That means this year he would have been 100. He was a Franciscan friar, and those are the guys in the long brown robes with the white rope belt. And he was among the most dedicated and productive visual observers. He was a larger-than-life personality, as, as Murray Paulson, who's a longtime observer and, and, uh, and a friend of Kemble's, uh, had noted in, in our meeting. And Kemble was among the most dedicated uh, observers, like I said. And, and he, his personality combined with his listserv activities. He was on a lot of these list servers that existed in the 1990s. And when I became interested in astronomy, he was very active on these list servers. I wasn't, I was still just a, a green brand new astronomer, but I, I would read his posts and I know lots of other people would as well. And he really drew observers to him just with the way that he wrote and the way that he spoke and, and how he communicated with people, uh, people from across Canada, like myself and people from around the world. He had friends in, in Sweden and, and Norway and other countries such as that. Um, but in, in the Deep Sky magazine in the fall of 1987, Kemble published a list of his favorite 32 deep sky objects over 25 fields. And he drew from a larger project to observe all the objects within his reach, uh, which was an 11-inch McCaskey telescope. And, and that was in the circumpolar northern sky from declination positive 50 degrees north. So he was observing here in Canada, and, and he focused his project to try to see every single thing north of 50 degrees uh, latitude in the nighttime sky. And I'll go on. When we think of Canadian observing, our thoughts turn to tough, cold winter nights, short, buggy, summer twilight, and the aurora borealis, of course. But few projects exist dedicated to the northern Canadian observer. Lucian Kemble was immortalized in his stream of stars we all know as Kemble's Cascade. However, he was a consummate observer. And in 1987, he pulled together a sampling from his most cherished objects to share with observers in the north. In his notes, Kemble remarked that his first binocular view of the Orion Nebula and M31 in 1962 remained with him and sparked a curiosity in deep sky observing and a desire to see nebula, star clusters, and galaxies for himself. He started using a 5-inch Celestron Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope, or an SCT, as we call them, in the early 1970s, before moving on to larger and larger Schmidt-Cassegrains, Kemble writes, I began to sketch a few deep sky objects with my first telescope, a Celestron 5. Then I purchased an 8-inch telescope and began systematically sketching all the objects in the Messier catalog. The experience was so enriching, I began to look for other lists. My good friends, Brenda and Bob Branchett, put me onto their newly compiled and published list of the 400 best Herschel objects. I completed this project by October 1981 and gained precious experience and skill in observing and drawing. So during the 1980s, Kemble transitioned to his 11-inch McCaskey telescope, and he sketched the objects in Norton's Sky Atlas, the Observer's Handbook, and many more from lists appearing in magazines and books like Astronomy, Sky and Telescope, Deep Sky Magazine. 
It was around this time that he realized that apart from the messy objects, the circumpolar sky had been sorely neglected because it was easy to ignore the ever-present objects circling Polaris in favor of the more alluring targets to the south. As Kemble put it, pass up and down so swiftly. So, you know, those objects in the south, they, they, they come up, they sort of flirt with that southern horizon, and then they disappear, you know, to the southwest. And it's it's really uh, something that draws us all. You know, I was looking through other observers notes like David Levy's uh, Deep Sky Gems, and and you can see there's few objects that are north of 50 degrees uh, latitude. To rectify this, Kemble said, I set out to observe and draw all the deep sky objects within my telescope limit from an arbitrary declination of positive 50 degrees north to the celestial pole. His list included all the objects 13th magnitude and brighter, plus a selection of over 100 objects to magnitude 15.5 for a total of about 600 deep sky objects. He was only partway through his observations when the article was published and Kemble would go on to make thousands of additional deep sky sketches in his logbooks and observe virtually every object within reach of his instruments from Lumsden, Saskatchewan and Cochrane, Alberta. However, in reading his observations, one gets the sense that it was never about finishing the project, mm-hmm. the discoveries you make and, and the people you meet along the way. I mean, you, you really do get that sense when you, when you read what he wrote, don't you, Shane? Yeah, for sure. And, and what I love about his, like his comments around like ignoring the circumpolar objects is 100% applicable to me. Um, I've said that before in the podcast that there are times uh, like when, when you wrote um, uh, you had a, in, in the Rask observers handbook, you had a focus on uh, Cassiopeia and it was fascinating to me because, you know, I've never spent a lot of time in that constellation simply because it's always there. <laughs> so I can always observe it. And that means my approach typically has been when I'm out in a dark, like, especially at a dark site, I'm looking south or east at, you know, new objects that are coming up or objects that are, you know, in a prime location because, you know, at some point I won't be able to see them. And in the back of my mind, I'm always saying, oh, I can look at Ursa Major tomorrow night, or I can look at Cassiopeia tomorrow night. And I just never do. So it's, uh, it's super cool that, you know, Campbell sort of embraced this, you know, that uh, he really should explore that part of the sky and observe everything he possibly could. Yeah, sounds good. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you another Kemble quote that will, that will mesh nicely with this. So to quote Kemble, I would like to present my plot of all these objects and a sample list of my favorite objects, most of which are within reach of an eight-inch telescope in a dark sky. Such a program is a challenge and a test of your observing skills that yields unexpected, pleasant surprises, some frustration, and plenty of insight into the universe. A project like 50 to the Pole requires more than casual roaming among the bright sky objects. When you plot deep sky objects, you can see some interesting things. I just really like how he put that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super, that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Like the fact that Kemble observed objects approaching 16th magnitude with an 11 inch telescope is a remarkable achievement, demonstrating the need for an observing plan and monk-like patience at the eyepiece. His work in detailed notes demonstrate what is possible, the reward of taking on a challenge, and, and what you can see if you stop and look around on your way to the pole. 
And, and he kind of concludes, well, this is, this is how he concludes the article. He puts, I hope these objects give you many hours of interesting observer observing, uh, you know, it's just super, super cool, like super cool project. I think just a different way of looking at the sky. Yeah. It's, it's very unique. Um, and, uh, like he said, he was addressing something that didn't exist and from where he was living, um, that's a big gap. <laughs> so, so I think it's great for Canadians for sure. And anybody else North of 50. And, uh, you know, so when I read through uh, many of his notes, um, and, and, you know, I kind of put the list here, won't go through all of it, but, um, maybe we can talk about a, a little sampling of these. So, so I thought when, when you read, when you read the article, you think, oh, eight inch telescope, well, this is going to be an easy list. And then you look at the list and you go, mm-hmm. holy cow, man, this guy's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like this is super, like, I would say half of it is pro- like, well, you know, that then it gets into like, um, you know, how diffuse some of these objects are, but yeah. you know, some of these magnitudes are not too bad, you know, from like uh 6.8 or there's a 5.7, uh, you know, so there's a smattering of single digit ones like that. And then yeah. there's some tens and 11s that, you know, still aren't too bad, but then it's like, no, there's a bunch of 14s and 15s <laughs> and that's, you know, that's getting pretty challenging for an eight. Yeah. Yeah. I think half the list is, is super tough. <laughs> yeah. See the Agreed. Least. Agreed. And he, he did observe them all. Um, he had an interesting observing style. So he, he really used his setting circles a lot. It sounds like he even mentions this mm-hmm. in, in, the, in that article. He mentions it in, um, you know, some of his other correspondence with people, um, you know, and, and that was actually one of the things that I actually knew about Kemble just from what, what I had read. So if, if that's incorrect, you know, you know, somebody who knows more about him or maybe correspondent with him um, can correct me. But from, I remember from what I had read in the nineties, uh, you know, before he passed away is that he was, um, you know, very much like somebody who did use the setting circles quite frequently, although we did know this guy, um, like he talks about when he was observing, uh, NGC 2602, 2603 and 2606, that he dialed it in with the setting circles and then sort of sat there with the eyepiece until, uh, until he was able to, uh, you know, see, see the object. So that, that's kind of how he was observing. Yeah. And, and setting circles, whether you use manual or digital, the nice thing with that, assuming everything's calibrated, is it sort of guarantees you have the right field. And mm-hmm. when you're looking for some of these faint objects, that's a huge part of the process and can be, you know, probably a huge part of why you might fail uh, if you don't have the right uh, star field. And when you're star hopping for real faint objects, uh, you know, sometimes you're, you're not going to end up in the right place. Um, so the setting circles just help like really guarantee that. Yeah, so some of the stuff that he that he observed or that he that he sort of included on on his list are, are things like you can go and look at other people who make northern lists. I was I was doing that, and pretty much everybody puts uh, like NGC one eighty eight, which is an open cluster, which is really near um, Polaris, and uh, although it's like a tenth magnitude cluster, it uh, you know it's it's easily visible in small telescopes. Um, and then typically, you know, like uh, IC342, which is a galaxy up in Camelopardalis, which is, you know, sort of sitting in behind some of the Milky Way stars, um, is, is also typically on those lists because it's, it's a big flat galaxy. And uh, at ninth magnitude, you know, you can see it in, uh, in you know, good size, like 70 millimeter binoculars and larger instruments. And it's one of those strange objects that, that is, is easy to see. 
uh, at low power. And of course, he mentioned uh, NGC 1502 uh, being at the, the end of a chain of stars. Um, but what he what he neglected to include in the list, of course, was his his own Kemble's Cascade leading. He didn't he didn't sort of call it by name. Eh? It's kind of funny that way. Yeah, maybe maybe just modesty. Um, who knows? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I just I, I kind of had wished that that he had put that in there. And then as well, like he has a couple other asterisms that are um, that are in the northern sky that mm-hmm. uh, aren't that that would have uh, you know met the criteria of being fifty degrees north. Um, and towards the pole. So uh, then it goes on into just all these Fink galaxies, named, named a few of them, but man, this is, and I, I went through and I read his observing reports on these and I thought it was interesting. And one of the things you and I were chatting about before we recorded Shane is that, you know, when you, when you just read somebody's observing notes, sometimes it's difficult to get a handle on um, exactly like what what they were thinking or, you know, what, what it was like for them, because some of these, you just put, this is faint, <laughs> you know, yep. and that was elongated yeah. faint, you know? And I mean, that yeah. was, that was it. That's, that's all he wrote for some of this stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, uh, that these were the selections that he made. And then some of them are simply noteworthy because um, he was really like pushing his limits. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, this list demonstrates a progression um, uh, basically this is a learning tool for people that really want to become good deep sky observers. And so what, what I mean by that is, um, he includes some of the steps along the way. So for example, um, the first, uh, 15th and 15th and a half magnitude galaxies that he was able to observe are on the list. So it's, it's a progression from seeing galaxies, of 12th and 13th magnitude into 14th into 15th. And, 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 and in fact, I went through and read as many of his observing reports um, as, as humanly possible, or maybe I went a little too far down that rabbit hole. And I found some that were even to 16th magnitude um, that were marked as 16th magnitude at the time, I should say they've, they've since been found to be slightly brighter and into the high 15th, but still, these are extremely faint objects, but I think what he's demonstrating here with this list is, is if, if you went through and observed all of this with like a 12 inch telescope, by the end of, by the end of observing this list, you would be a pretty good observer, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it'll, it'll help with those skills to f- find faint objects, but tease out as much detail as you possibly can. Yeah, it, it would be real. I think this would be uh, pretty pretty tough to to do. So, but anyway, I, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, it goes on talks about some uh, brighter planetary nebulas like NGC six five four three. I think that's the Cat's Eye Nebula up in Draco, and then uh, we have uh, NGC six eight two two six, which is the the blinking planetary nebula mm-hmm. up in Cygnus. Um, and then he has like uh, NGC six nine three nine, it's a beautiful open cluster. I've I viewed that. Um, but what's funny? What I found funny about the list is, in some cases, he he pairs up um, some faint galaxies or groups of galaxies, and then but with six nine three nine, he didn't put the fireworks galaxy, which is right there. So I thought, I thought, I thought it was kind of a strange list in that respect. Maybe he was just limited by. Sp- by space. Okay. No pun intended. It's an, it's an observing list. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, but I thought it was, I thought it was a little bit strange that he didn't include like a few of the nearby objects, you know um, I forget which one it is, but I think it's the, yeah, the uh, 5,000 series of galaxies. I, I think um, some of those are beside 
um, Messier 101. And so when I was talking with Mike um, about maybe trying to tackle some of these, Mike said, oh, um, those are the galaxies that I use to determine how like good the sky is that night. And I'm like, oh, so there's sort of this broad usefulness among Hmm. many amateurs in how some of these objects are used, but he only mentioned M101 in passing. So, you know, really like when you, when you dig into this uh, work alongside with his um, extensive detailed um, and lengthy notes and observations and sketches, um, you can kind of start to draw some conclusions, but I I think it would take um, some, some work to, uh, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that would definitely take some time. Yeah. There's some, there's some other cool things. So, so I've been kind of, I was, I went through his notes and read, um, as much as I could, I read all the ones that, that we have access to. There's, there's a few that we don't. And, uh, and then I started to think, well, what are, what are some of the other interesting things that, that he, um, that he observed both challenging and maybe not so challenging, um, but that he made notes on. So, you were asking like, you know, there, I think how many, how many observations uh, are there in the digital format that, uh, that we were talking about? Whew, there's uh, I think there's just over 3,200. Yeah. And then I, I told you I'd gone through them all mm-hmm. and, and you thought that was pretty crazy. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, but how I did it is I, is I, is I put them up on a screen and I zoomed in and I loaded them all into the uh, memory of the computer so that I could just sort of flip through them all and almost like using like a blink comparator, um, like how they discover um, asteroids in the old days, the, if I flipped really fast, the bright uh, or the larger or the more interesting objects pop out. And then I would stop and kind of tap, tap, tap and go back to that one. And so sort of looking at the, um, the field sketch portion, and then I would do the same thing for the, um, for the observations, because many of them, he would just write faint elongated or like a very brief description. And then, um, if you wrote all kinds of stuff, then that would pop out pretty quick. And so then, uh, that's, that's what I did, um, to kind of hone down, a, a sort of a smaller list here of some interesting stuff that, uh, that he was observing, uh, because basically, much of the stuff that he was looking at was like 13th magnitude galaxies or fainter. And I think that's just so tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not easy. <laughs> uh, you, you definitely need some aperture um, and a, a good dark sky. Yeah. So when he was observing Kemble's cascade and, and when he was um, doing some of his other observations, he would, uh, he would write um, sky and telescope magazine and, you know, anybody that has access to, to the archives can, uh, can take a look at that stuff. But um, one of the objects that he mentioned in his Kemble's Cascade um, letter to Walter Scott Houston um, and, and was published in December 1980 was uh, Stock 23, which is Pasimo's cluster. And this is uh, a beautiful open cluster, and it wasn't plotted on the charts at that time. So, so he, he wrote this, and this was published in Sky and Telescope. He put uh, also in the same uh, area, Kemble ran across the uncharted cluster known as Stock 23, omitted from star charts and observing guides. This little cluster is surprisingly conspicuous in amateur telescopes. It is about 10 arc minutes in diameter and has a total magnitude of about 6.5. And then he put several years ago, uh, New York amateur John Pasmo also happened upon this cluster. His reports appear in uh, Sky and Telescope magazine in, in uh, March of 1978. 
Uh, and then uh, Houston goes on to to talk about um, Kemble's explanation for how he would do his sketches, which is pretty cool. So he says, Kemble used a trick for making drawings at the telescope uh, that I've not heard of before. He racks the eyepiece out of focus until only the brightest stars are visible and then plots their relative positions. Once the skeleton is made, he refocuses and adds the fainter stars. So that's, that's how he actually did uh, the sketches. So it's kind of cool because... That's not mentioned anywhere in in the sketching uh, in the sketching work. So I'm not sure what you think about that, Shane. No, that's very interesting. Now he did observe like a lot of different groups of objects, and one of the things that he did, and if you go through cloudy nights, you can see this as well, because this is well known again because he communicated with so many different observers um, that these things are still being talked about. It's it's kind of amazing to think that uh, he was, uh, you know, sort of quote unquote, just uh, an amateur astronomer. Um, and, and he still talked about to this day, if you look up um, what size telescope do you need to see all the Palomar um, globular clusters with, you'll see all kinds of posts around saying, oh, well, Kemble said, you know, and it's amazing. Like people are, are quoting him as like general knowledge in the amateur community. Um, here decades after his his death. And that, I think, is a real uh, tribute to, to the impact that he made on the community. So, for example, he saw all the Palomar uh, clusters with his 11-inch telescope. We have the observations. We know this. He, you know, was uh, publishing those online as well. So everybody, everybody knew that Kemble had seen these with an 11-inch. And uh, there is one that is north of 50, um, which is Palomar 1, which is a soft glow uh, suspected using averted vision, according to um, Kemble. That's that's what he wrote in his notes. So it's really interesting to think about the fact that he he was able to see that. So you know now I'm like, well, you know, with Mike's telescope, I really want to go and and try to try to knock that one out. I think that one would be pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that is interesting. So these Palomar globulars were only found, I think, in the 50s or 60s or something like that. So uh, you know, they're, they're pretty tough. I've seen a few of them before. I think like Palomar 11 and Palomar 12. And I've seen the, the, the three brightest ones. I think there's three that are brighter than 12th magnitude or something. And, and I, I've hunted those ones down. So, um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're very beautiful and, and uh, tough, tough going. Um, some of the other things that, that could be worth looking at are like NGC 896, which is part, I think it's like the heart or the soul. It's one or the other part of that nebula complex and he mentioned that and did a sketch of it and he mentioned that frequently in his in his notes um and then this one this one's really interesting because um it's it's mentioned um in his observing notes but it, i couldn't figure out what it was um and it's called ling one which is um an object uh that alistair ling had run across and Alistair Ling is a columnist for astronomy magazine. I think I mentioned him earlier and, uh, and, and I, I know Alistair a little bit because um, we were sitting on the um, RASC uh, national committee when that existed as reps for our various centers. And, uh, and I knew who he was, of course, like he walked in the room and I'm like, that's, Al that's Alistair. I know who he is. I have to go and talk to him. And I don't, he would remember it, but I went up and I was like, I really enjoy reading your stuff. I remember. I'm sure he was like, who is this loser? <laughs> or something. 
but, but anyway, I was like, really, it's really cool though. Like when you're in these amateur circles, you can actually like meet these people and whatever. So mm-hmm. anyway, the odd time I would, uh, you know, uh, run into him at, at different things. He's like an extremely nice person and, um, has always been very gracious. And so I actually was asking him about Ling one, um, and, uh, and, and so he sent me his observing notes on it yesterday. And so now I know where to plot it. It's not plotted on any of the charts or anything. Um, but it is, uh, it is at 60.2 and, uh, anyway, it's just Southwest of stock 20, um, I think is, is, is where it is. And, uh, and so I was like, there's nothing, there's nothing plotted there on any of my charts. And I have a lot of charts, as you know, anybody who's listening knows that I, that I collect, um, star charts. And so I, uh, what I did is, uh, is I looked it up in my software. My software is really good. Isophotes. Do you know what isophotes are? Photes? Sorry. Iso what? Isophotes. Anyway, no, no. these, these are the contours of the Milky Way. So what they do when they're making, um, like, you know, when you open up a star chart and you see like that beautiful flow of like the Milky Way and sort of like this blue and mm-hmm. some areas are darker and lighter and blah, 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 or riffs or whatever, you know, like that sort of thing that you see sort of spanning many pages of your star charts. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Th- these are the isophotes. And my understanding is what they do is they're taking an aggregate of the data and they're applying that in, in certain ways. And I don't know how they do it exactly. And then they plot that. Um, now using computers into the charts of the softwares that, that you're using. And, and so what I did is I, is I knew now exactly where this was. I took a screenshot and then you could vaguely see, and it could have just been like a smudge on my computer or something, but you could vaguely see that, that where Alice Trade indicated there was um, some of these isophotes there. And so I, I pumped up the contrast and played with the brightness and that. And then I actually put the pointer on and sent it back to him. Like it showed up on the isophotes. So definitely it, it's a, it's a real something. Um, Alistair was saying it's probably like an asterism. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, Oh, maybe it's like a star cloud or something, but he's, he's saying, you know, it's an asterism. And, uh, now I gotta, I gotta go take a look at this. Looks like I'm so excited to go and observe this once it clears off. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah uh you know some of the other stuff that Kemble observed um you know many times was some of the objects in and around cedar bland 14 so this stuff is you know i think what many people would uh, determine is very obscure um mm-hmm. but it also happens to be a lot of the stuff that i observed too sorry about that Shane. i just said okay yeah yeah um i i've observed cedar bland 14 so cedar bland 14 is near ngc 7822 these are two huge nebular complexes which are um, very far north they're, they're probably the the largest brightest um nebulas in the northern sky um I think that's probably the best way to put it cedar bland 14 i think is brighter than the ngc portion which i find a little bit strange but anyway he he was observing all sort of the clusters in and around them and many times and that sort of thing so i, I thought that was pretty cool and then some of the other stuff he observed was like the dwarf galaxies that that are up there and in, in he observed a dwarf galaxy in draco um which is amazing because i went i tried to find other people who had observed it, and i think only like mel bartles and maybe a couple other people had uh, had sketches of this online so these are things that weren't greatly observed uh, he observed the Ursa Minor uh, dwarf. He observed the Leo One dwarf galaxies. He observed some quasars that are up there. He observed a lot of UGC galaxies, um, which you think of as being like so faint. Um, I think the only other person I knew who's been observing these 
um, that like sort of in our circle is, is Mark Bratton with his uh, 18 and 22 inch telescopes. And uh, holy cow, like the, those do you think of as tough, but some of them don't look too bad. So I'm like, holy cow, I got to go take a look at some of these because they don't look like they're, they're too bad. Maybe I can get them in my five inch. And I think I thought I'd never see a UGC galaxy in my five inch. And now I think, huh, maybe I'll be able to do that. Um, anyway, there's, yeah, there's a lot of other different things that, that he was looking at. Um, uh, one of them is, is a really big cluster called uh, Colander 471, which is a huge cluster, um, part of the Cepheus OB1 Association. Uh, he said that one's very large, it's a bright open cluster and, and part of that uh, Cepheus OB1 association. So, um, and I, I have been trying to observe a lot of these myself and, uh, and it's marked in the charts and that, but I just hadn't, for whatever reason, it hadn't caught my attention before. So it was really cool to go through his notes. And I'm like, I kind of went through thinking, I'm just going to find the objects that he put in that article and then, you know, kind of see, um, you know, what of those I can see, but then, um, as I was trying to locate those, as you know, it's not organized at all. So you have to kind of look at everything if you're going to try to find things. And then I was finding this other stuff and then sort of putting it in a separate file folder. And then last night, I kind of went back to it. I'm like, there, there's some stuff here that I want to go and take a look at now that I otherwise would have missed. So Kemble is is probably going to guide my observing for the summer, sort of strangely enough, um, you know, 23 years after his passing or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, like some of the objects that he was into is not like, they're just not all like, not all of these are common and uh, not, or, or not part of common catalogs. So it's easy to not be aware of them or even overlook them in some cases. Yeah. And like I said, the one thing that uh, the one thing that I did um, have a bit of concern over was the fact that for whatever reason, none of his, planetary nebula observations survive. And, uh, and that's unfortunate. So, so I had written Alistair again, like, you know, I'm really appreciative, you know, and what a nice person to really spend some time and care and attention uh, as Alistair did over the past uh, few days, as he's always done the past when I've ever reached out to him. And uh, he actually wrote back um, with like a really key piece of correspondence and, and he wrote back and said uh, that he had, he had a, a letter there and he quoted the, the bit from the note that said that uh, Kemble was um, at that time, whenever it was written, uh, which was around the time of this article, I think, um, waiting for the uh, Web Society Observer's Handbook on the, on the planet that contained the planetary nebula. And then Kemble had said there's 146 planetary nebula in, in that text. And he had observed, I think, I think it was 140 out of the 146 and probably the six that he didn't observe were just below the horizon here. So, mm -hmm. so I have that book. So then I'm like, I got to get that book and I couldn't find it. I'm like, where's that book? And I looked, I scoured the whole house and it was pushed back and my bookshelf is deep and it just was pushed back. Uh, I have the volumes um, one through seven or eight or whatever they are from the web society from, you know, they, they published those in the seventies. Um, but I bought them when a telescope uh, company was going out of business and I happened to be driving by and, they had them all and I bought them for like $15 or something. Anyway, so I grabbed it and I'm like, I know that he he observed everything in this. And and I mean, he observed for years after that email was written. So um, likely he did observe maybe them all or, or, if, or if he didn't, then they would just be the ones below the horizon. So I kind of feel like, okay, well, like that, that there in hand is at least 140 planetary nebulas um, that we know that he observed now. So, so right there, if somebody has, has that, or they want to 
you know, spend the lavish amount of $4.95, which is the going use price for one of those books, uh, you, you, too can, you too can have uh, have a compendium of all the planetaries. But he observed all kinds of different things. Um, you know, a lot, like most of the King clusters up in Cassiopeia, um, a lot of the Berkeley clusters, a lot of the Zernic clusters, um, and more and more just, just one-off objects um, and, and people's own observations that like, uh, like, uh, like Alistair's observation of Ling one, which isn't charted. And, and he had gone and, and observed that, um, you know, di- different things of that nature, just really, really inspiring to kind of, to kind of see all that. So I hope this, this, uh, this podcast made sense. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm interested, okay. um, you know, the, uh, the, like the, the observer that Campbell was is, is fascinating in and of itself. The fact that, you know, again, we have such a close proximity to his work is, is super cool to me. Um, and then when you layer on just that he was into some really different projects, at least at the time, or again, unique objects, um, that's fascinating. And then uh, the fact that a lot of this stuff, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but a, you know, a significant portion is, um, is challenging. And as he stated, you know, if you observe this, this will make you a better observer. And I think that that's uh, a neat thing to work towards too. Well, I like the way you put that chain. I'm not sure if you have anything else to, to add to this episode. I just want to share one quick descript, like observing log from Campbell. Um, okay. So it, it it's from the article uh, "50 to the Pole" in the Deep Sky Magazine edition from fall 1987. Um, and any northern observer will probably relate to this, uh, which is why I I think it's kind of special, or at least why I like it. Um, so the uh, observing log is for NGC 2320 as well as 2322. Uh, I spotted NGC 2320 easily in spite of an interference from a bright auroral band. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the part that, uh, you know, I think a lot of Northern observers can relate to. Yeah. Um, and then he just goes on to say that there is a, there is a strange difference in the old and new descriptions in the RNGC for NGC 2320. The old description states that an eighth magnitude star lies to the southwest, but the new description states, and then in in, uh, brackets more correctly, uh, that a bright star lies uh, one arc minute to the northeast. NGC 2322 is faint and lies to the southeast in the same low power field. So I I love the reference to the aurora, and I also love the, you know, like kind of calling out that there's some errors sometimes in, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, you know, numbers or, or magnitudes of, of objects yeah. or even the position of objects. So sometimes if you see something that seems not right and you're confident in the star field, you know, it, it might just be because of an error in a catalog. And uh, those are not uncommon. That happens all the time. Yeah. And that's one thing that I, you know, from what I understand, um, people like Kemble and, and other folks were trying to sort out at the time is um, some of the errors and omissions, which had been carried, carried forward into the NGC and the IC and the other um, object indices and catalogs. So they were really trying to, trying to work through that. So even though like we often think of like, you know, the early observers like Carolyn Herschel and William Herschel and Swift and Barnard and all these different folks. And then, you know, Dreyer kind of working together to sort of bring these all together into these catalogs. Um, 
I think one of the one of the things which has occurred sort of in the more recent past is a lot of uh, amateur groups. I know there was the NGCIC project, which has gone a little bit defunct now, but there's been um, some spinoffs from that. And and we have all these sort of observing notes from people. And then people like uh, Wolfgang Steinecke have gone forward and created uh, like his text. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment, but it's on the uh, observing history of, of the NGC. You can just look up Wolfgang Steinecke and NGC book. And I have his book here, actually, right here on uh, on the Herschels. Um, and a lot of the, the rectified um, positional work um, is in there. And even in the RNGC, there was a lot of errors. And so they were able to, uh, to help rectify um, those errors, emissions, and, and mistakes. There is, and, and I should point this out. So, you know, because I kind of, in a way, kind of don't want people trying to go digging. These, these articles um, can be difficult to find. Like you, you just happen to have like uh, Kemble's actual uh, physical copy, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but in going through that and going through the list, I went through the list in detail and um, there, are, there are some uh, challenges um, to the positions and, and the object types and some of the other things uh, in this list. So one thing that I've been working through, and we hope to publish this um, probably next year, is uh, to go through and actually do the rectification for this list. And so that's going to require a few different stages, which uh, I've done the first stage, which is to actually grab the updated um, details and then there's the observational stage, you know, actually go out and to, to take a look at these objects. So I've uh, been, been chatting with Mike on uh, maybe how we would do that. Um, might de- need to, uh, to find some other observers uh, as well. Certainly if somebody is uh, interested out there um, and doing it and has uh, some pretty significant experience doing this, this type of work, this is pretty specialized work. Um, you know, I'd enjoy hearing from them. Maybe somebody with like an 18 inch telescope or something like that would, uh, would, would be very helpful. So, so anyway, I think Bill Weir's, uh, been, been making some of the observations too. In fact, I know, I know he has. Um, so, so that's, uh, that's kind of where we're at with this right now and, uh, hope to, uh, do some observing, um, you know, using, uh, some of Kemble's logs, uh, this summer, Shane. Yeah, I think that's super exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of these objects. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Please like and subscribe. That really helps the algorithms. And we're always excited to get your observing reports to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.